You're listening to the Bold Face Truth Podcast with Amy Green Smith, episode 461. You can find information on anything referenced in this week's episode at amygreensmith.com slash EP461. there. Check you out listening to self-help pods and working on yourself. Fuck yeah. Quick question. You know those situations where your boss asks you to take on one more thing or your partner asks what's bothering you and you respond with a bold-faced lie? Oops. What would shift for you if you actually started telling the bold-faced truth? Everything. Listen, if you struggle with people-pleasing, perfectionism, and you could use some help with boundaries or speaking up, you are in the right place. Thank God. I am Amy Green-Smith. I'm a certified and credentialed life coach, hypnotherapist, and keynote speaker. Fancy. And I've been working in the personal development space since the mid-2000s. Vintage. Sometimes I'll be solo, other times you'll hear from smart folks offering you easy-to-implement tools to help you tell the bold-faced truth. Yes! Hey, hey, pod people, Amy here, and we are continuing our mini-series on trauma and family and what that looks like in our lives. So if you missed it, last week I did a deep dive into understanding trauma as it relates to the subconscious mind. And I also offered up a really great journal prompt exercise that can help you start uncovering some of the sticky areas in your past that might be informing, you know, your behavior now or your reality now. So This week, I am going to give a call to my buddy, Alexa Ray, who has a wealth of knowledge and expertise in the trauma and mental health arena. I'm hoping that I can catch her. I'm going to give her a call here in just a minute. But let me tell you a little bit about her with the hopes that she does pick up. So in her former life, Alexa Ray was a professional mental health clinician who worked in a variety of areas, including acute mental health, trauma, forensics, eating disorders, adolescence education, and more. And she left this realm because she was kind of struggled with a lot of gaps in the healing and wanted to shake up the mental health game. And so she quit that career to follow her true purpose and has gone on to help hundreds of women reconnect with who they are really meant to be on this planet and heal the relationship with themselves and their bodies. I mean, who among us doesn't need that? She travels the country speaking to women at various events. She's also a part-time professor in a mental health and substance use graduate program. And she educates the up-and-coming clinicians to approach mental health differently. She also runs a podcast called Authentically You that I had the joy of participating in and being a guest on her show. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. But I wanted to give Alexa Ray a call to see if she could inform us a little bit more about parentification trauma, what that is, what a window of tolerance is, like a bunch of topics around trauma that I had not heard of before. And she's she's actually trained in psychodramatic body work, cognitive behavioral therapy, just a ton of different modalities. So I thought she is the one to give a call. 
Another thing to mention with this entire series that is on trauma, I just want to give you a content warning or trigger warning that if you are currently working through traumatic events or abuse or anything like that, just tread lightly. And if you need to shut off these at any point, please do that. Take care of yourself. And if you need to skip this mini series, that's fine too. I don't think there's anything super explicit that we'll discuss, but anytime we're in the realm of trauma, I think it's worth just putting a note out there. Hey, take care of yourself and just be honest with yourself about what feels good to unpack or to process or to carry at any given time. Before I give her a little ring, if you have been listening to some of my recent episodes and you've been hearing me talk about my program Worthy, which is a deep dive group coaching immersion and luxury retreat that uh, the the entirety of the program spans nine months. So it's a damn near a year with me <laughs> changing all of the things that are no longer working for you in your life. If you've heard me talk about that, the application window is currently closed and we're depending on what happens this week, I may end up opening another application window next week. So stay tuned for that. It just depends. I have a bunch of calls and stuff that I'm I'm chatting with folks this week. So it could be that we totally fill up. I don't know as I am recording this in the future (laughs) or actually in the past now for all of you. If you are interested, be sure to stay tuned because if we do open up a second application window that will happen next week. If you are wanting more specifics about Worthy and what that program entails and what the topics are and all of the things, you can get your hands on the official invitation if you go to amygreensmith.com slash worthy. You can download a full PDF of the entirety of the program so you can read through it. But pretty much, if you want to believe that you're enough and you're done with perfectionism and people-pleasing and caring so much what other people think and constant self-doubt, lack of confidence, then this is probably right up your alley. So again, we will let you know next week if there will be another application window available. And Also, it includes a five-day luxury retreat. I know I already said that, but we're going to Mexico, and it is included in the the entire program. Okay, let's give Alexa Ray a call and see what she can teach us about trauma. Alexa Ray. Hey, it's Amy. How are you, friend? Oh, hey, Amy. What is up? How are you? I'm doing pretty well this morning. A little chaotic, but I'm okay. Okay. I I definitely know that place quite well. Uh, but hey, listen, I'm calling you up because I'm hanging out with the audience over here. We've been talking about trauma. We've been talking about inner child stuff. And I thought, okay, I've got to call up Alexa Ray. I know she's got just so much to say about this, but do you have a handful of time? Like, are you, are you able to talk? Yeah. You know what? I just ran in the door. I just came from a, a chaotic hike. I have three dogs and it's chaotic. And so I just came in, got myself a nice fresh glass of water. And I am honestly about to just chill out for a bit from that intense walk. So I had some time to just dedicate to this for sure. How, okay. So first of all, what type of dogs do you have? 
I have two Basenjis, which are barkless African dogs. They're very rare. Okay. Um, and I have a Doberman actually that I rescued just about six months ago. So how yeah. does it, so we've always had just two and I don't, how does Ugh. that, that feels like a nightmare, just managing two and they're tiny. They're like fucking 10 pounds. So how on earth do you walk three dogs? Like honestly, on- I'm off leash. I go off leash. Oh, I, okay. Cause I can't fucking handle the leash. Yeah. My husband will take them for walks. And I'm like, no, I'd rather go off leash because it's too much. We didn't plan on having three dogs. Yeah. Long story short, we have three dogs. Yeah. And so <laughs> we're imagining one's a puppy. She's just six months. And so we like to go off leash so they can just roam around and we're not worrying about tangling them up because they're just, get, they really get tangled up. It was bad. It was bad. Yeah. I, okay. So that makes a lot more sense. So, yeah. Okay. So I've heard you talk about so many cool topics. I know you have a a background as a clinician and in therapy. Something that I think comes up a lot is this idea of abandonment wounds or Mm -hmm. like the mother wound, the father wound. I've done an episode here about that. And I think it's really important that we're not saying I have mother issues or I have daddy issues. Like those those sorts of common phrases that we say, I think do a disservice to the people who actually need to take responsibility in those situations. Right. <laughs> when you say I have daddy issues, it makes it sound like it's your fucking fault that yeah. your dad was an asshat. So I feel like let's change the vernacular a little bit into no, I'm dealing with a wound that Mm. wasn't self-inflicted. So talk to me about what abandonment wounds are and how they kind of manifest or show up in our lives. Yeah. I I really like that because I think like you're saying, it's that we can't dismiss people's responsibility. At the same time, I feel that really discrediting, discrediting our own experience. And so for me, like, I really believe that a lot of people carry some sort of abandonment wound because people feel like I have to be abandoned by my parents severely in order to have that wound, but that's not actually true, right? All the stories are going to be different, of course, but the wound really is the same. And so it comes down to any part of your life where you felt like you were left alone, even if you were dropped off of your grandparents for the summer and you felt like as a child, you're supposed to be kept safe by these parents or these people, that they essentially left you, whether that was a metaphorical, you know, absence or it was a physical absence. And that really can play out to so, so many things. And I think there's things, you know, you talk about people pleasing, that's a big one for you, right? Um, You know, it can be as simple as if you, let's go back to some examples, actually. So, you know, birth trauma, for me, my big abandonment was I was adopted as a baby. And so from the moment I was, my umbilical cord was cut, I was essentially living in an abandonment wound. Um, you know, being dropped off at parents or or at camp, being a death of having a death of parents, sick parents, anything like that. And so it can really play out into real life by feeling overwhelmed by any sort of criticism, um, you know, really not knowing how to effectively navigate conflict, uh, people pleasing, like I said, having a really low sense of self-worth comes from that self-doubt comes up, um, relationship struggles. There's so many ways that it can come out because we don't have that secure attachment that we should have as kids, you know? 
Um, I actually had this, this thing of the day at the gym. I just want to tell this funny story at the gym. Um, I, I work with my best friend once in a while. And so I was, we were just having a hilarious time and we kind of make light about our traumas. Cause that's how we go through it. And I sure. said, you know, I was never breastfeed and breastfed. And that's why I was on some random guy heard this and he just started laughing. It was just this <laughs> It was so fucking funny because I was like, okay, now you know an intimate detail about my life. Have a good day. But it's just like, <laughs> it's, you know, it's things like that. Like I didn't have that experience. Right. Um, right. It's like things like that, that lead to me now having to be an adult, having to work through all of those things that I don't think people had a language for. And now we truly do. And I, what I'm hearing you say too, is that it's not necessarily that the intent of the person doing the quote abandoning is malicious. For example, it could be a parent who passed away, you know, from cancer or something like that, where they're not doing it specifically to try to abandon you or from a place of malice, but just you are feeling that absence in some way. Or if you have a parent who worked their ass off to provide for you, but they were gone most of the time, that there's still this void. There's a sense of something else should be in this place that I'm not mm-hmm. getting. There's a need not being met. Is, am I assessing that correctly? Yep, absolutely. Like any any of the experiences, whether, yeah, like your parents are hustling, whether they're struggling with mental illness themselves, whatever it is, right. It's not malicious. I generally believe that most parents are not maliciously trying to hurt their children. Um, but it really experiences this belief in a, in a child's brain. I'm not lovable. I've been abandoned. Something's wrong with me internally. Um, the world isn't safe. I can't trust love. I don't know how to attach to people, you know, and I'm only level. I'm only lovable if I behave a certain way too, is a big one, right. Which leads to that perfectionism, people pleasing, things like that in, in adult life. Do you think that there are ways in which we feel emotionally abandoned? Mm-hmm. Like if you grow up in a family. So for many of us, obviously, who are, if you're an elder millennial or Gen Xer for sure, there's mm-hmm. it's not likely that you were raised with a lot of emotional intelligence in your household. And yeah. most people, it's like you need to you need to just be happy and everything else. We don't want to fucking see it. We don't want to deal with it. So if you are, you know, empathic or a highly sensitive person, which usually develops because of that, (laughs) right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then you feel like I'm wrong for feeling the way that I feel, or there's something inherently wrong with me because I emote so intensely, or I've been shamed about that. Does that fall under the same sort of abandonment wound label? Totally. I think that, you know, I have so many women that come and they're one, number one is that they struggle to realize that they've experienced trauma because they feel like, oh, I was fine. My, my childhood was fine. You know, my dad worked a lot and, and they don't really want to label themselves as having trauma. And they feel like I should be okay because I wasn't sexually sexually molested for my whole life, right? Like something drastic. Um, but I think that there's definitely that, that connection because at the end of the day, if I don't feel seen, I don't feel safe being my authentic self in my childhood with the people who are supposed to allow me that, then of course, I'm not going to know how to navigate the world as who I am supposed to be or not even know who I am, you know? And I think that abandonment wounding is, is a really, I guess, not fully spoken about, but also not fully understood because people think I should have been, the word abandoned is a very intense word, you know? 
And I think that's really what it comes down to. But at the end of the day, you know, some people will go through their lives having this really deep wound from their childhood that never gets resolved. And some people, you know, will, will figure out how to do that. But I think that the key is that we have to recognize that it is a real thing. Like you're saying, it doesn't have to be this severe thing. It can be as simple as I got, I went to summer camp and I felt like I was abandoned by my parents. Right. And it was something they thought was really great for you, or, you know, maybe you have Hmm. social anxiety or you don't want to, that you'd rather be by yourself. And so that, that act felt like an, an act of abandonment. I also think that nobody, at least this is what I see in my work is nobody really roots for their trauma. Nobody says like, nobody wants to be someone who has trauma. So I think it's easier and also sort of a defense mechanism to say, oh no, it was fine. I'm okay. I'm over it. And most of the time when I hear my clients say like, you know what? I don't really think I have any hangups from that anymore. I'm like, then you definitely do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now let's back up a minute. (laughs) That's right. Okay. So I, I heard you talking about this idea of parentification trauma. Mm. And it was the first time I had heard that moniker. And I understand there's two different types. There's emotional parentification and instrumental parentification. What the fuck is that? (laughs) (laughs) What? That's so fancy. I'll break it down for you. But essentially it really comes down to role reversal in your childhood. So if I am a child Um, and I have to be placed in a role of needing to care for my parent. I did not breathe right there. Just take a minute. Uh, I have to roll reverse, take care of my parent as a child, when I'm not developmentally supposed to do that. That is what people call parentification trauma. And it is a, it's a newer term. I think, you know, people, if you're not in therapy or in trauma, you might not have heard the term like you're saying, but the, the thing is that emotional means that if I have to caretake my parents' emotions, if I have to keep them happy, if I have to listen to them vent about how they hate their partner, you know, any emotional labor I have to do as a child that I shouldn't have to do, that would be the emotional. And then instrumental means that let's say I have a parent who um, is struggling or something has happened and I have a younger sibling and now I have to cook the meals, I have to do the laundry, I have to do all of these instrumental or physical um, you can call them labor really sure. that you shouldn't be having to do. That would be the instrumental aspect of it. So there are two. And I, and I find that a lot of people do experience both if they, if they come from certain households as well, because, you know, if your parent feels like they just can't function, they're struggling, whatever it's going on, you know, you might take it about among yourself, among yourself to actually caretake because you want to feel safe. You want to feel attached. And that person who is keeping you safe needs you. And that's how you're going to learn to love, which is really intense. When you think about it, if I attach having to do things for other people in my childhood to love, I'm going to grow into an adult who struggles with codependency, who struggles with people pleasing, who doesn't really understand how I can really stand on my own self-worth without being needed by another person. I see that a lot in the work that I do with clients and students where if they start to get into a relationship that's really healthy, where the other person is saying like, no, you don't have to take care of my emotions all the time. They almost want to create the chaos because mm-hmm. normalcy feels unsafe in a way. Yeah. Right. And 
because there's that way that the brain has registered that this disorganization and me caretaking for this other person's emotions, even though it's wildly painful, it still registers as safe, right? The mind goes like, I know how, I know how to do this. So I'm guessing then that if you had those sorts of roles presented for you in your childhood, that as you get older, you start to attract those same sorts of situations. So it could be that you end up being so much emotional support in your office or Mm -hmm. always being the one that people come to cry to or feeling like you can never break down because you have to be the strong one, right? Mm -hmm. Or that everything is your responsibility. And then if we also compound any marginalized identity now, there's additional levels of here's my duty as this particular race. This is what we do as this ethnicity. This is what we do as this gender. This is how we, you know, handle ourselves as how, whatever it, whatever label you ascribe to it. So if you're in that sort of a situation where you're recognizing that there's been these unhealthy parental dynamics in your childhood that are manifesting later, what what do you start with with somebody? Like, what do you do about it? Mm-hmm. I think this is like parentification. I think trauma, in my opinion, like on my approach to trauma is that I, I believe we have to do like top down and bottom up modalities because top down means that I, from whether it's parentification, whether it's an abandonment wound, I have a belief system that was built off of those experiences. And so I'm going to go through life. Like you're saying, unconsciously, I have this belief system that's leading me and guiding me through life. And so you have to be able to look at that belief system and shift that belief system. And I really like to say to women, like you get to recreate the story of who you are as a person, but that's not really how trauma works solely. I also believe that trauma lives in our bodies, right? So you really have to, number one, learn how to challenge those beliefs. So if I have a belief that I am not lovable unless I'm needed, I then have to look for what evidence do I have for that belief? Is that really serving me anymore? And if it's not serving me, well, then I need to look at how I can change that belief, challenge it, looking for evidence, looking for any sort of distortions in my cognition. Like an example would be a distortion would be um, a really common one is all or nothing thinking. So either I'm lovable and needed or I'm not needed and I'm not lovable right? Those are very drastic things, but there is an in-between between that. So really looking at distorted thinking or, you know, thinking styles, whatever people want to call them um, and learning to challenge yourselves. And that's a skill in itself, being able to do the work, understand what those distortions are, number one, and then being able to really consciously make an effort to catch those is a really helpful skill because then you can sort of get to a point if you continually consciously work on that, then you can get to a place where you're unconsciously just, oh, that's not the right way. You know, oh, that doesn't make sense. Um, And then the bottom up part means that like somatic healing is that my trauma lives in my body. Um, And this is why you'll see a lot of people be in situations where I feel unsafe, but at the same time, my ego is telling me this is okay. So I'm going to go in this unsafe situation physically, even though it mean it looks really unsafe to the outside world. And so you have to be able to do nervous system regulation because when we're talking about chaos and that addiction that people can get to chaos and those hormones is we have to be able to pause that and, and our sympathetic nervous system, that's what's kicking in there and then put the brakes on that and regulate ourselves. So there are many skills that we can do to 
to activate our parasympathetic nervous system. Dancing is one singing, gargling water is a really good one. Um, any sort of breathing, mind body connection, like yoga, going in a forest and going for a hike. There's so many ways that we can do that. But the key to doing these practices is that the, the part that people struggle with most is doing them consistently when you are not dysregulated, because we can't expect our brain who is so used to being in this dysregulated state to when we're in that state, Oh, I'm going to actually pause for a second and just gargle some water. No, right. You're not going to get there. Right. So that's the key that people have to remember is that I have to consciously make an effort to do it regularly. So my brain can unconsciously go there faster. We talk about on the show how there's sort of this difference between what we know consciously and the conscious faculty of the mind versus the subconscious faculty of the mind. And what you're pointing to is is a deep-seated belief system, which is housed in that you know, 90% of the subconscious mind. It depends who you talk to. It's like 5-10% conscious, you know. 95, yeah, yeah d- depend 90, 95% subconscious. But the but what we don't realize is that if we've created an association with something like a positive association with people pleasing because it has kept us safe mm-hmm. in a massively dysregulated home, now the, in our minds, there's a concrete belief that people pleasing keeps us safe. And in some situations it does. Yeah. But let's employ that all the time. And then we realize, you know, consciously, I understand I don't, this is not helpful to give a shit about what everyone else thinks or to sacrifice myself for everybody else's needs. But one of the ways in which we change that belief is through repetition, which is what you're talking about, like doing things over and over and over again. It's not just consciously knowing in order to embed it into the subconscious, it has to be frequent. And I think that's one of the reasons why people throw in the towel with different exercises or affirmations as they go, oh, this doesn't work because we're expecting it to work like a magic pill, like every fucking else that goes on in our society. So before we continue on, I wanted to ask a quick favor from you. Do you ever listen to the pod? And I think this might happen for you where you think, damn, I really wish so-and-so could hear this. Maybe it's your coworker who could actually use a lesson or two on boundaries, or maybe it is a women's group that you're a part of where everyone is super on board for speaking up for themselves, but nobody really knows what that really sounds like. Okay, where here's where you come in. I have three battle-tested and badass keynote speeches that are ready to be delivered to your company, organization, group, association. So if you, your community, or anyone you know could benefit from me rocking the mic, like who couldn't use some new tools, right? Please send them over to amygreensmith.com slash speaking where you or they can message me directly about specific needs for the audience. Shocker, the three keynotes are focused around speaking up, contending with fear, and accessing enoughness. And all three of them can be delivered either in person or virtually, and of course, can be completely customized for specific audience needs. So again, simply send them to amygreensmith.com dot com slash speaking where they can get in touch with me because listen it is time 
that women everywhere have the tools necessary to use their voice, take up space, and advocate for their wants, needs, and opinions, like yesterday. And if you end up orchestrating an opportunity for me to speak with your group, you will officially get unlimited squeezes from me. (laughs) And I'm sure you're all in now. And be sure to let them know that I can always temper my colorful language if needed. And thank you. I wanted to take a quick moment to thank Let's Get Checked for sponsoring this podcast. Let's Get Checked makes professional health testing super easy by letting you get tested without having to visit a healthcare provider. Well, testing for what, you might ask? Well, they have a huge array of at-home testing kits, including women's health, men's health, sexual health, and wellness kits. In fact, I did two of the women's hormone testing kits, and it could not have been easier. And then when I received the results, I was able to simply forward them onto my naturopath to get her thoughts. All you do is you simply choose your test online. It will be delivered to you in discreet packaging with next day delivery. And then once your sample arrives in the lab, confidential results results will be available from your secure online account within two to five days. Once your results are available, they'll be reviewed by a physician and then a nurse will contact you for a consultation over the phone. And in some cases, a physician will be able to provide prescriptions to the pharmacy of your choosing. Let's get checked. Laboratories are CLIA approved and CAP accredited, which are the highest ranking levels of accreditation. Let's get checked. Let you avoid uncomfortable office visits by providing you with access to home testing and professional medical consultations without ever leaving your home. It has never been this simple to get tested. So get this. If you want to try a test from Let's Get Checked, all you got to do is go to trylgc.com slash bold truth to save a whopping 30% on your first test kit. 30%. Just use the code bold truth, all one word at checkout. That's bold truth to save 30% on your first test kit. Let's jump back to the show. One thing that I think we should probably clarify, I'm really curious how you would describe this. I hear the trauma word thrown around a lot. And mm-hmm. my personal thought is that pretty much everybody has trauma. <laughs> no <Yes>. matter, 100%. <laughs> you know, just living in a patriarchal society is traumatizing. How do you define it? Like, how do you define trauma and what are some typical trauma responses? My definition of trauma is that my brain experiences something that feels unsafe and my brain is going to react to that way. And so people, even when I used to work in trauma recovery, like in a, in an actual mental health facility, people would compare their traumas all the time, you know, right. Oh, well, it's not that bad. Cause I'm not a veteran. I didn't go to Afghanistan to fight the war or, you know, like they're, and I said, that's not what it's about. It's about the fact that your brain has had this experience and it has now changed how you see yourself how you see the world and how you see other people. And that's the big thing for me is like, it's an experience that has now shifted how I, I believe, you know, myself, how I believe other people should react or how other people are safe and how the world is safe or unsafe. Um, And so you can think about the world today. It's a very uncomfortable place to be at times. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people, of course, are going to experience that as how do I attach trust and safety to anything in the world? because I can't, but you know, there's a lot of unstable things. And so my big thing from trauma, I feel that is 
people who are, like you're saying, they don't want to do the work or they don't think that they have to do the work. They are attaching themselves to this experience, but I believe that, and they internalize that experience where I believe that if you do the work or you learn to change your belief systems or how you feel safety in your body, you're able to detach yourself from that experience and just see it as something that happened and not attach your story and your identity to that experience. You know, so that's the sort of the thing that I feel like trauma, I mean, we could define trauma. You can go to the, the ACEs. If you're heard of the ACEs, yeah. the adverse childhood experiences, really big research um, project that was done really well done. You can even go on um, Ted talk. There's a really great Ted talk about the ACEs, but it talks about um, these nine things that um, sorry, 10 things that if under the age of 18, these 10 things happen to you, the higher the ACEs score that you have, the higher it's correlated to, you know, physical illness, chronic things, you know, addictions, all of these things. And it goes down from like neglect, you know, the typical ones, but the thing I don't like about the ACEs is it doesn't talk about the traumas of feeling unseen, feeling like I can't speak my voice. Right. And so those are things that it is missing in the research, but trauma responses. I mean, (laughs) there are so many trauma responses. The biggest ones I see are people pleasing, lack of self-worth, relationship instability, meaning that I don't, like you're saying, I don't know what safety should feel like. And I did that my whole, most of my life, you know, I am now sometimes just literally talking with my, on my hike with my friend this morning is that I can't believe I'm in this stable relationship because, you know, it took me so long to get here. And I remember with my husband now, when we first started dating, I said to my friend, he's a bit uh, he's weird. He's too nice. You know, yeah. he's too nice. I don't understand that. And, and now I'm thinking, oh, that's exactly what happened is that I was at a place where I was like, this is uncomfortable for me because it's not unstable. Addiction is a big one. You know, sure. people have so much stigma around addiction and it really pisses me off because every addiction is rooted in some sort of trauma. A lot of attachment, there's a lot of research around attachment trauma and addiction itself, like abandonment, wounding, right? All of these things. It's like addictions is a really misunderstood thing. And that it's simply a response to an actual situation that's happened in your life. So I don't know if that really answers the question, but. Completely. Cause I'm thinking about, you know, I oftentimes will say like, if we're feeling, if we have an, an emotional feeling that's really uncomfortable for us. We'll try to rectify it with a physical feeling. So mm-hmm. if if there's emotional trauma that we don't want to feel, it makes so much sense that we'll tap into the other sense of feeling, which is physical. Let me just drink this away, fuck it away, you know, mm-hmm. do drugs it away, <laughs> you know, something else that allows me to physically numb. And and I think we even do this, I call it noble numbing, where we'll will throw ourselves into, let's say bodybuilding, you know, or parenting or mm-hmm. our work where it's absolutely an addiction, but it doesn't have the social stigmas of some of the other ones. Yes. Right. So wow. we can kind of go, Oh, but look how noble this is. Look how right? cool I am. Yeah. What do you think about even trauma responses that are like, this is one that I don't think people recognize is laughing when things are really, really uncomfortable. People laughing when something is serious is usually your nervous system just trying to regulate itself in that situation because it doesn't know what to do. Just like when people, you know, get frozen when they're anxious around a situation. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. It's a it's a it's a response. You know, anxiety and depression are there's a lot of evidence that's rooted in some sort of wound 
you know, and, and like you're saying, we live in this society, uh, which is one of the reasons I left formal mental health was that they just want to pop everyone with some pills and expect them to just navigate through life. And it's not the answer. You know, I remember I met one lady and she's like, oh, I haven't had anxiety for my whole life. She's probably 35, 40 and I'm on nine or nine pills or something. And I'm just thinking, wow, no, like what, you know, it's like, if we really understood how to just regulate ourselves, we would be much better off as a world, but it takes more time. It takes more effort. I think it's an old school train of thought around that medication is always the key. Now I'm not dismissing medication. I think there is a time and place for it for sure. Having said that, I do feel that it's a quick fix and I'm sure you agree with that. (laughs) We're quick to jump to that instead of really looking at other things that could be helpful. Um, I've been on medication for gosh, probably almost 20 years Mm -hmm. in different iterations. And, and I really think it just comes down to, I had, I had a gal, uh, Britt Frank on the show and she's a psychotherapist and, and she, we were talking about the same sort of concepts around medicating for anxiety and depression. And she's like, it really comes down to like your life experience. You know, if, if you aren't, if you don't have the choices to do the work, you don't have resources or access to quote, do the work and what that really looks like. Maybe you're taking care of a shit ton of kids and you're working a bunch of jobs and you're really stretched thin. You don't, you might not have the bandwidth. You might need to actually use a medication or something to help you just survive the circumstances of your life. So um, one of the other things that she said that really struck me was this idea that does medication actually help you feel more like yourself or Mm. do you feel less like yourself? And and I feel so much more like myself Mm. when I have a little bit of help versus what a lot of folks go through, which is I don't, I feel like I lost my sense of self. I feel numb. I feel then it's, that's probably not the solution for you. Right. Right. Like I think it's really, really nuanced, but I do agree with you that I think we're hyper diagnostic and we're hyper ready to medicate when there's a lot of other things that we can try and do. Which is interesting. Cause I mean, I live in Canada, you know, we would quote unquote have free healthcare versus there you would probably pay for healthcare. Correct me if I'm wrong. Oh yeah. It's Um, a shit show. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, it's still the same across the board. Doesn't even matter what it looks like is that we are quick to jump to it because we don't have the resources, but I do feel like that's an interesting experience is that I was on medication and I've been on a few times in my life to get me through situations. And I was the person who was like, I feel like a zombie. I I can't connect with myself. And so it's really I mean, enlightening to hear someone yourself saying that it's not the experience for you. Cause I know many years as I worked in mental health, that a lot of people go off medication solely for that reason. Now it might be, not be right, the right medication. Right. But I think at the end of the day, there's always a time and place for medication and it's not going to do everything right. That's people right. That if I take this pill, my life should magically just be better. No, it do it. They say it has about, you know, 40 to 60% of the work. And then you have to do the rest of the work. You can't just expect your life to be different, you know? Exactly. And Mm -hmm. you know, when, when you think about neuroscience and how, how little we still know about the brain, it (laughs) makes sense to me that there would, that the jury would still be out on like what works. There isn't one thing that works for everybody where now you are free and clear of dealing with your fucking trauma. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Like that shit will always be something that will be carried with us in some way, no matter, no matter what. But one of the things that I've heard you talk about that I would love for you to share about is the window of tolerance. Mm, I love the window of tolerance. It's a way to create language for us, but the window of tolerance is essentially, I was trying to imagine like this thermostat. So I'm in the middle of the thermostat in my window of tolerance. And this is the state where I'm able to take in new information. I feel calm, but I'm not exhausted. I'm alert, but I'm not hyper alert, right? It's essentially the perfect state. I'm able to handle stress in that moment. But when people come from a trauma experience or even just being burnt out, being a single mom or mom of three kids trying to manage a life, you know, anything like that, our ability to to stay in that window of tolerance is very small. So our window is tiny. And so on the top end of the thermostat is our hyper aroused state. And this is when our sympathetic nervous system is is hijacking the rest of our, our body. So this is when I feel that fight or flight response, which I'm sure we've all heard of the stress response, fight or flight response. I'm overwhelmed. I feel out of control. I'm extremely anxious. I'm agitated, right? And then on the bottom part of the thermostat is when I'm chilly and I'm in my hypo aroused state. And this is my parasympathetic nervous system is over overrun. And it is making me feel exhausted. It's making me feel like I'm not present in my body. Dissociation is a big one where I'm either not physically present or I'm like looking at my life above me. You know, there's different types of dissociation, but essentially I'm just numb and I cannot function. And so the key with Trump, what should be, this is not all trauma therapists, unfortunately, but my approach is that I want you to be able to expand that window of tolerance by simply skimming the touch, the top of your trauma. Like, I don't think that trauma should be, I'm going to fully reimmerse myself in the experience that's re-traumatizing and you're never going to evolve past it. You should touch the surface and be able to come out so that I can create my window of tolerance to grow and get really large so that I have a higher capacity to handle stressful situations. Um, and so the big thing is, so if in your hypoarousal, I'll give you some skills you can think about, I'm really hyped up. I'm intense. And so I want to calm myself down, weighted blankets, putting the lights down, you know, lavender scents, things that are really going to chill you the fuck out. And then on the bottom part, when I'm too cold, I need to raise my temperature. So I'm going to do jumping jacks. I'm going to, you know, dance in the kitchen. I'm going to turn the lights on. And the I find, you know, both states are really hard to come out of. Again, it comes down to that regular consistent practice. But when you're, I've been in there, I don't know if you can experience this when you're mm-hmm. numb and you're so depressed and you can't get off the fucking couch. Like you're like, yes. I don't care if I die here, you know, yeah. that is a really hard state to come out, to force yourself out of. And what I like to call is behaviorally activate your brain to get out of that state. So, you know, to say like, oh my gosh, I always say to my clients, you know, if you get out of bed and you move to the couch, cool, you know? Yeah. Don't make this massive goal that I'm going to go for a walk around for a 30 minute walk. Get to the fucking couch, you know? Oh my God, I got to the couch. Cool. And then continue on from there. But I think that's the window of tolerance and a gist is that we want to be able to expand that center so that our temperatures aren't fluctuating so much. I see. So in the hyper versus hypo, I'm seeing it kind of as heightened anxiety or senses of depression Mm -hmm. and if I'm in the throes of anxiety, I probably need to de-stimulate myself in some way. And if I'm in the throes of depression and immobility, I need to stimulate in some way. But 
I'm also hearing you say fucking baby steps. Like we don't need to eradicate it and we don't need to run a marathon if we've been depressed. Like just, and I've been in those places before where I've had to talk myself through the entire shower. Like even telling myself like, just take a shower felt overwhelming. So in the shower, I had to, I had to go like, okay, just get in the shower. Okay. Just do the shampoo. And I had to cheer myself along the whole way. Like, oh, you already got shampoo. Good job. Okay. Next. Don't worry about the whole shower. Just get through the conditioner. Just, you know, because when you're in such that hypo aroused state, Mm -hmm. everything feels like intense labor and feels overwhelming. Exactly. And I have people who say when I'm in my hyper aroused state and I'm ready to go, they, they kind of enjoy that. Number one, they're either addicted to that state or it's like, I can be functional, very functional sometimes in that state, sometimes not, but like, and when you're in a hyper state, yeah, like you're saying, I can barely freaking shower. It's yeah. a big thing with people, but I think people really focus on, if I want to feel self-worth, if I want to feel self-love and have my shit together, I have to go from A to Z, but you, you, you can't, that's going to yeah. set you up for failure. You know, small steps that add up, that's what gets you to the finish line, not to going from the turtle versus the, was it the tortoise? The, the hare. No, the rabbit versus the tortoise thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. And and so maybe it's not the tortoise and maybe it's not the hare. Maybe it's like a nice little mini pony. Yeah. <laughs> you know, something going <laughs> along at like a reasonable trot, right? Like, yeah. Or, you know, sometimes I'll say instead of A to Z, let's maybe just go to F. Or instead of black and white, what's the chartreuse option? Right. Like when we, when we have that extreme binary thinking, I've heard you talk a lot about self-soothing and I think this is nicely in tandem with, with the window of tolerance, but what are some great ways to self-soothe? What does that look like? Yeah. I think self-soothing is, is such a lovely thing that people feel uncomfortable doing because it feels a bit weird. I would say like, oh, it feels a bit like, oh, I'm a hippie because I'm doing these weird <laughs> practices, you know? But I don't think we weren't taught them in our, especially for myself, like as a millennial, you know, I wasn't taught those things. Sure. You know, taught to have my shit together and move on through life. Um, so self-soothing is, it's so valuable because it's going to help you not only with that window of tolerance and hopping up, it's also going to help you when I feel like, I need someone else, like a partner. And I always have to be with someone. I can't be alone because I have that person to co-regulate. Well, you know, once we're not children anymore, we should be able to self-soothe if we're taught those skills. So one of my favorite ones to self-soothe is what I call boo breathing. Um, And so essentially I'm not about like these and people are, but I'm not about having these extremely formal breathing practices. Mm-hmm. I like to have a casual approach to self-soothing. So it's more realistic, more down to earth and more up to, to use the skill. So boogie breathing is essentially just breathe in. And then when you exhale, you're going to try and make your exhale a bit longer than your inhale. And you're going to say boo and a low tone as you breathe out. So you inhale in, exhale, boo like this. It's really simple. It's good. If you have kids, you can teach your kids that, you know, um, and I really, I do it all of the time. And another one I also really love for me, self-soothing is, is when I'm feeling anxious, if I'm in that hypo aroused state is to use my hands. I love silly putty. 
Mm. I, I use silly putty all the time. I play with it all the time. Um, having something where you can focus, um, and be able to self soothe. Right. So it depends on what state you're in, but I think boot breathing is a really amazing one. Um, you can also do tapping if you're, if you can, even if you just Google tapping, I'm not, you can't really do it on a podcast, but essentially just tapping. And I believe affirmations are great. I also feel like affirmations should be paired with some sort of physical grounding skill. So if I do the boot breathing first to ground and regulate my nervous system, then I say the affirmation because then I'm more up to be able to cognitively absorb that information versus being in a, out of my window of tolerance and not being able right. to actually take that information in. Um, yeah. So that's the skills I would suggest is really the boot breathing, trying to boot breathing, um, dancing is a really good one that, and singing is one that people don't really think about, but it is, it's connected to our vagus nerve, which is also known as our trauma nerve and anything to do with your vocal cords is really valuable in actually self-soothing. So anything like that. Um, and it, and one more thing I'll say too, is if you're into writing is to writing yourself a self-compassion letter. There's a lot of research that connects writing self-compassion, even every day for seven days actually helps you feel more regulated and self-soothe for six months past that week. Um, and so that's another skill if you're into writing as well. Tell me if I'm wrong, but I think utilizing some of these skills, especially the ones that are tied to our physicality, where we're we're not targeting the emotional element, we're targeting like breath, we're targeting the vagus nerve, we're working with the nervous system. Is there a way in which we need to also tend to the emotional piece. Like I understand that when I'm in the throes of an anxiety attack, those situations, I'm not going to be super reflective and wanting to journal. Like I need something that's probably, you know, like, what can I see? Five things I can see, five things I can touch. Like there's, I do need to tap into the physical, but I think something that we miss out in those self-soothing tactics is that whatever caused the intensity of emotion still also has to be addressed, right? Like yes. through yes. therapy or we can't just have a series of self-soothing practices no. without addressing the shit that our mom did. Right. No, I don't. That's only going to get you so far. I think like I'm saying, like that would be a bottom-up practice. You also have that top-down practice. You have to do the both in my opinion. Otherwise you're not going to have sustainable evolution past that experience of trauma. And my programs that I work with women on are based off of number one, you do inner reflection every week. You're doing homework for you to look at that experience. That's how it's created you. And then how can we change that story for you? And you're also doing the physical stuff. You have to, there's no other option really. I mean, you could, and a lot of therapists sadly only focus on one component of it, but it's not sustainable. And that's why I'm sure you have that experience where women are coming and people are coming from formal therapy world and they're seeking people who are. I guess, alternative, you would say, mm-hmm. because they're like, it's not working. I am. And I, a big thing for me is that I feel like the, the formal mental health care or people who are only focusing on one component are keeping people in survival mode. Okay. I'm alive. I'm functioning, but I'm not thriving in my life. Sure, and, sure. and that's what people really want. You know, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I'm, I'm reminded too, of like some NLP practices where will work with how you are feel when you get into an emotional state that is really comfortable and you want to stay there we'll use like a physical anchor like a way that you can move your hands or even giving yourself a hug or you know 
uh, a whole slew of things that you can do. But I think that's one of the biggest pieces that I see missing. And I'm, this is exactly what you're talking about is the synergy or the synchronicity between all of the pieces, the mind, body, and the spirit. So it's not like mm-hmm. we can just tack attack what the mind's doing or what's happening emotionally or what's happening physically. We have to really target the entirety, like the holistic system, you know? Absolutely. I totally agree. And there are so many modalities out there that are valuable. I find that people will go to, let's say a, a therapist, healer, whatever you want to call it. And they'll have one modality that they use, but I feel like we should be coming from a more holistic approach is that I, I I should be dabbling from a few things if I want to. Cause even if you go back to the research or the DSM five, which is the diagnostic manual, I hate that thing. Yeah. Um, Cause it was <laughs> developed by a bunch of white dudes up in an office who yeah. have done research on people who have mild anxiety. And that's where CBT came from was like, Oh, you know, I have mild anxiety and, and we don't actually get people into the research who are extremely unwell or, or complex because right. um, it's not good for for the statistics and the research. So I think that we have to be able to come from a holistic approach if we want to generally have real change. Like modality that I, you would call like alternative that I am versed in is psychodramatic body work. And yeah. so it's around like, you know, really understanding the emotions, what emotion. So out of like fear, sadness, and anger, out of those three emotions, usually someone can tap into one really easy. Like I could cry at a drop of a hat, right? Mm-hmm. Me finding my voice in anger is really, was really difficult for me. And so being able to understand that act out the situation that you feel activated by, and then release that emotion, right. Being able to step into that emotion is so valuable. But if I were to say that to someone in, you know, a mental health facility who is like CBT, DBT, you know, they would be like, no, that's not actually where the evidence shows. What, where does your evidence come from? I just want to say that. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> there's a similar, there's a similar modality in a hypnosis called hypnodrama where mm. you basically in the hypnotic process, you take people through specific situations that they went through kind of voyeuristically, almost like I think about it, like, you know, when you watch Scrooge or, you know, a Christmas Carol and he, the different ghosts of Christmas past or whatever, take him to see his life through a window. It's that's what hypnodrama is where we, we don't regress back to being that age, but we look back at like pivotal moments throughout your life. And like, what would you need to say to that Mm -hmm. version of yourself throughout like this timeline of your life can be really, really fucking powerful. But again, it's on the woo woo end. Exactly. It's it's not going to be in the DSM, but Oh, Alexa, right. I could talk to you forever. I can't thank you enough for just sharing all of this stuff. I love hearing all of these fun new terms. I get so excited about that. (laughs) You know, I love, I think the human brain loves to categorize and have names for things and, you know, size things up. So I'm sure people are going to be obsessed. Where can they find you? Where do you hang out the most? How can they get a little bit more Alexa, right? It is Alexa Ray Schieffer. You can probably put the name in the in the thing because it's a pretty long, weird name. I'm on Instagram a lot. I also have a free Facebook community full of women, thousands of women who are doing healing work and all together. I believe that the power women together is really incredible. So you can, I'll send you the link for that as well. And I also have 
a freebie, which is a five-day email series where you get to learn about self-love and and challenge those beliefs and do some work like that. Um, but yeah, Instagram would be the go-to. I'm also on Facebook, but I feel like Instagram is the five. I'm also on TikTok, but I'm just figuring that place out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> TikTok is for Zijan and for Alpha. <laughs> yeah. It's like I am a voyeuristic middle-aged nightmare on TikTok. Like <laughs> it's too much. <laughs> it's too much for me to do, but I will watch the fuck out of everybody else. But <laughs> exactly. There's some funny things on there. <laughs> yeah. It, and some really, really great education, some really incredible professors and experts on there. So anyway, yes. I'll link to all of that stuff in the show notes. So everybody can take your, your five-day email series and get connected to the Facebook group and all of that. So awesome. thank you so much. I'm so glad I caught you right after the dog walking. And hopefully this got you into your window of tolerance where you could just calmly handle our conversation. <laughs> Definitely. I feel very chill now and I appreciate your time. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Alexa Ray. I'll let you go. And I will just say, see you later, my friend. Yeah. See you, Amy. Thank you so much. Whew, so many good nuggets in this episode. I'm hoping that some of the things that Alexa Ray was able to share helped inform a little bit more understanding about why you operate the way you do and why your dynamic with your primary caregivers or family of origin might feel a little sticky. And again, I just want to underline something that I talked about last week, which is that you deserve your healing, period. That can look a ton of different ways, but I think there's very few of us, if anyone, who isn't at least a little bit scarred by some of the things that they experienced in their childhood. So you deserve healing. And next week, I am going to be bringing you a solo episode where I talk about what the fuck to do if your parent kind of sucks. <laughs> and maybe you've wanted to move on with your own personal healing, and yet you're still kind of plagued by an unhealthy relationship with one of your parents. Stay tuned for that. We'll do a deep dive. And until then, please remember that your voice matters. You are enough. So go out there and speak your bold-faced truth. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Just one more thing. So these podcasts, it turns out, don't actually rate and review themselves. So I would be over the moon if you would leave a review, rate the show, subscribe and tell anyone you know who needs to start speaking the fuck up for themselves and if you do I will give you a mini pig just kidding but I will be so very incredibly grateful okay thank you bye